Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Paul Rebellia, who is a world-class bodybuilding coach and owner of Pro Physique. His results speak for them from for themselves, as you'll see from his Instagram and YouTube. And today we're going to be talking about contest prep and particularly some aspects of getting really lean for people who may be having troubles when calories get really low. So thanks for being on the show, Paul. Absolutely. So yeah, I was thinking we could kind of have a broad overview of your practices when it comes to contest prep and then narrowing in on some more nitty gritty as we go along. So yeah, maybe just starting out, how do you usually go about planning someone's prep in terms of how long to, uh, to budget? I mean, a lot of it just comes down to kind of understanding the the relationship between someone's calorie intake, their like daily activity, um, how much body fat they have to lose um, for the division that they're fitting into. And then, you know, making sure you give yourself enough time to get there. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's definitely different for every single person. And, and the thing is that I've had the ability now to work with people for many years. So you know, some people I understand very well, my clients, I can nail it down to the day that we need to start prep. Um, but I always tend to err on the side of caution, right? I'd rather have more time. Um, the old moniker that don't get ready too early. Um, I don't believe in that. You cannot be ready too early for a show. You, you know, that, that, that makes you more successful, the more ready you are. So, um, you know, I'd say a safe bet is 16 to 20 weeks for a typical prep. Um, but knowing that that doesn't mean that every week is a prep week where you're always going to be grinding. You know, I definitely believe in diet breaks and recovery. Um, those are some of my biggest tools for, for success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll be curious to get into your thoughts on diet breaks and refeeds and those kinds of things. Um, in terms of starting out with your macros, when people start prep, are there any adjustments you'll make right off the bat when they're just starting? So yeah, the first thing I do with somebody is kind of a caloric or, or diet recall. Now, most people that find me are kind of familiar with what I do, right? So they're not coming to me completely lost on the idea of, you know, tracking macros or calories. Um, but I'll often make some adjustments. I think, you know, I, I don't value protein as much as some coaches do. You know, if I have a competitor who's 150 pounds, I don't think they need to be on much more than 150 grams of protein a day. I'd rather use those calories and carbs and fats because they have a lot of value um, for, for other purposes. Whereas I know some people that are 150 pounds are on 250 grams of protein. Um, I just kind of find it unnecessary causes digestive issues. So, you know, I, I think I'll always kind of tweak things um, based on my preferences but I also like to get the feedback from the individual. If they love protein, they want a little more protein. Sure. If they love fats, then I can kind of take it that direction. If they, you know, so I try to, within the constraints of my philosophies also fit their preferences because I, you know, that kind of buy-in really helps. And, and honestly, if they've been doing something for a long time and it's been working, there's no reason to, to reinvent it. Right. It's, it's, it's all about, you know, making sure you're using the best approach for that competitor um, but every competitor that I work with that initial phone call, these are the things we go over. Every, every setup is unique based on their history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, that's an interesting point about how I think often, you know, people, obviously people have broad, uh, variations of how much protein they'll take in, but as 
macros become a lot more constrained when you have calorie restrictions, then you kind of want to meter out your calories wisely. And I think, you know, like for myself, when I go into prep, you know, my protein will actually come down a little bit because I'm just coming down to what I really need and the, you know, extra calories I want to be spending on carbs and fats. Yeah. Yeah. As people go along and they start stalling, you know, on with fat loss, when and how will you make adjustments to macros? Yeah. So the first thing, typically, if someone stalls, let's just say we just, they stalled, right? And then I'll, I'll make an adjustment. I'll drop some calories and I'll bump up some cardio. If I don't see progress that week when I would expect it, that's when I'll dig in a little deeper and I'll talk about sleep. I'll talk about stress. I'll talk about recovery. Um, I'll ask them if anything else has changed in their life, new job, you know, because what I often find with competitors, and this is very true of myself when I first started competing was when my cardio and prep got a little bit higher, my extracurricular activities got a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. So I remember looking back at my preps and thinking, man, I, I stopped doing all these things I was doing before prep. It actually made me have to do more cardio than if I'd have just kept doing the things I was doing before, like, you know, going to the park to shoot baskets or playing ping pong, as silly as that sounds that non-exercise activity, or I guess that's technically exercise activity or, you know, taking the stairs at work, or, you know, you just get really good at conserving energy when you're low calorie and low body fat. Mm -hmm. And those are things that weren't taken into account. The first time I prepped with my coach, it was literally just, here's my progress. Okay. You didn't make progress. Let's adjust. Um, and, and as a coach now, that's something I pay a lot of attention to is like, what is the overall picture? Not just, okay, we adjusted calories and cardio, but you'd be surprised how many people stall simply because, you know, there was a, you know, they might be losing their job, their spouse was unfaithful, um, you know, they're going to be moving, they're planning a wedding. So I really try to understand the relationship between their daily activity, their stress and the, the, the plan that we're on. Because a mm-hmm. lot of times you simply just resolve something that's causing stress and boom, things start happening again. Um, so if I see that situation and I say, Hey, we just made an adjustment. What's happening? Oh man, I'm, I'm really tired. I say, okay, let's just take two days. I want you to take two days, no cardio, no training, hit your numbers, take a nap in the middle of the day, get caught up on, you know, life, do your laundry, pay your bills, anything that's kind of weighing on your mind, clean the house and then check in. And, you know, like magic, they will be down several pounds. Um, um, or at least they'll just be feeling better. And then we know we can when push forward. Um, so yeah, contest prep, you have to look at the whole picture. You can't just go, what are your calories? What is your cardio? And go from there. You have to look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And as to, you know, the, the exercise, you know, thermogenesis thing, you know, you're getting low calorie when you're like cruising around the parking lot, looking for a spot that's closest to the store entrance, you know? And yeah, I think that there are a lot of things that come into contest prep that, you know, a beginner bodybuilder might not necessarily appreciate. And as well, as to the point about the the stress, I think the stress point is a, a, a big, big thing. And when I, you know, put together a contest prep calendar, I'll kind of it'll be more like a life calendar, right? So I'll, I'll schedule in, I'll have a broad overview of everything else that's going on in terms of, you know, like rotations that I'm on in the hospital or, or big other events that I need to plan around. And those might be good times, you know, to be thinking about 
moving around and using diet breaks or refeeds and other types of tools that can help you in terms of sustainability. Absolutely. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of the mechanics of it, how, you know, how much will you drop uh, sort of carbs or fats or calories and how much will you bump up cardio in a single adjustment? All right. So let's say I have somebody doing 30 minutes of, of steady state cardio five days a week. And let's say they're on 150 protein, 200 carb and 55 fat. Um, typically if they stall, I'll bump up their cardio by 10 minutes a session. Right. So they're now doing 40 minutes. Um, I'll probably drop their carbs by maybe 30 grams. Um, so 120 calories, and then I'll drop their fats by five grams, another 45 calories, right? So you're looking at a couple hundred calories, almost a couple hundred calories from, from, from your diet and a little bit more movement, um, to boot so that there's a combination there. Um, there are thresholds, you know, once I, once I get to a place where fat is low, 40 grams is about the basement for, for most men, 35 for most women, right? Once I get there, I really try not to go below that Mm -hmm. carbohydrates. Once I get below somebody's body weight and carbohydrates, that's when I start to pay attention. Right. So, you know, if this person was 150 pounds and we're getting their carbs down to 150 or below, that's when I start doing things like, um, uh, you know, I'll, I love adding in more activity. So I'll actually have them do a cardio session in the morning and then go for a walk in their neighborhood at night. Right. So just kind of bumping that metabolic metabolic rate up twice a day. When, when most people are tired at the end of the day, I say, go for a walk that can really kick things into gear. So I don't make big adjustments. Um, but I also, you know, doing this for long enough, I don't hesitate to make an adjustment. I don't, I don't wait two, three weeks and think, well, maybe things are going to happen. No, I would rather make sure something's going to happen, be ready early because my philosophy is you have to be ready early to bring food up going into the show. Um, because that is the best look. That is the most um, successful competitor is the one that's actually going into the show eating more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I, I, I'm in agreement where I think that the biggest mistake early competitors get is, is not being ready in time, right? And yeah. just coming in and not being in condition and having that extra buffer time can really help. In terms of... Um, yeah, when calories get really low, moving into some of this stuff, I, you know, building on the discussion you had with Steve Hall on uh, Revive Stronger podcast, you were talking about how you will kind of use these short periods of just increased activity and maybe decreased calories. Could you tell us about how you like to use those? Yeah. So one of the things that I find is difficult about prep is that it's just kind of never ending, right? Like you get into a point in prep where you're just like, you know, you know, you've got eight more weeks of grinding. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I find very helpful is to go, okay, what we're going to do here is we're going to take three days and we're going to, you know, I call it like hell week, three days of getting after it. And then we're going to take two days of nothing, no cardio. You can train, but food's going to come up. And what that does is it kind of allows those people to go, okay, I, I can get through anything for three days. But if I told you for the next seven days, you're going to be doing cardio AM and PM on low carbs, you pace yourself. You go, oh man, this is going to be a tough week. Whereas, you know, mentally speaking for two or three days, most people are excited about that because they're like, I'm going to see an immediate result. I'm going to go hard for three days. I'm going to see new details. I'm going to see a new low. And then I get some recovery. Um, and it just, 
it works much better in, in my mind to do something short like that. Now I will have some competitors that after three days are like, Hey, I don't feel bad. I can do a fourth day. Great. Let's go for it. I also like to get buy-in from the competitor, whatever's, whatever they're excited about. If they're like, man, I don't want a high day yet. Great. Um, believe me, they're going to beg for one soon enough. So if they're mm -hmm. really pushing themselves, um, then I'm all for it. If they got the, you know, the mental capacity to keep it going, because the psychological part of prep is something that I pay a lot more attention to than, you know, when, when I was starting coaching, um, I want to get buy-in. I want to, I want to make sure they're excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, yeah, that's an interesting tool. You know, I think that, especially with the crowd that we're speaking to where, you know, people are very dedicated and very disciplined. Often you're dealing with the other end of the end of the spectrum where people are you know, they're like, what more can I do coach? Like, I want to add more and add more cardio, drop yes. calories more. And it's almost like you're putting the brakes on things where it's just like, let's uh, not get, you know, too deep into it. But sometimes some of these kind of short blitzes might be something useful in terms of kind of like factoring in, you know, average weekly calories. If you were to compare like the average weekly calories, when you do something like that versus if the prep had just been stable across do you, th have you noticed that there's been any difference? Yeah, I, no, I, I think, you know, as we get leaner and we get closer to stage weight, I think that the, um, the mathematics kind of goes away and I'll explain why, because yeah. everyone wants to talk about the, the calories in calories out equation mm -hmm. and they try to use things like their scale or, you know, uh, an app, but something there's the body is different when it's lean because you can turn off and on hormones when you raise calories for a couple of days, changing that equation, right? So the calories out equation changes. The calories in account can even change too, because if your digestion slows down, right, you can actually extract more calories from your food. Mm. So when, when you push yourself really hard for a couple of days and then do a short recovery period, I find that you get the benefit of losing that body fat for those couple of days. And then you get the recovery. Um, I don't know that that works as well at the beginning of a prep, right? Because like you said, those averages at the beginning of a prep, you can just, you can just lose weight successfully for a while. Yeah. At the end of a prep, that body fat is harder to get off. Um, it's the last little body fat that we have. And, you know, I, listen, I, I want to do he the healthiest prep possible, but I'm also a competitive son of a bitch. I want to mm -hmm. win. When yeah. I compete, I don't care if I have to do three hours of cardio. If someone says that's too much, I go, good, don't do it. Come to my show and let me, let me outwork you. I really want to do that. You know, like that's kind of my mentality and that's the people I work with mentality. So if you can manage that mentality as well as give them enough recovery, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful result because most competitors by nature are very hardworking people and not just the prep life, but the outside life, right? Like, you know, people will say like, Oh, I don't have time for prep. Meanwhile, I have a single mom with two jobs, three kids who does six shows a year and wins. She gets up at three in the morning before her kids. And, you know, like, you know, there's just that it's a different gear mindset. So, you know, my thought is let's, let's find a way to take advantage of both that as well as the evidence-based approach. And I don't know that there's ever going to be a lot of evidence on sub 5% or 10% yeah. <laughs> body fat people, because it doesn't make sense what happens to my competitors at the end of prep. It doesn't make sense that I have a 110 pound girl eating 2,500 calories and doing no cardio at stage weight. When I had to get her down to a thousand calories to get the weight off, but now I can reverse her 
and it just the magic happens, right? That that type of um, kind of I don't know hormonal recovery. The sleep is better. The rest is better. Her neat goes up. Like those kind of things, you know. If you tried to explain that to someone, it, it doesn't. The math doesn't add up. Um, but it's it clearly works. I mean, you know, I've got hundreds and hundreds of competitors that are doing this, and I think it's why I have so much success because I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only coach that's taking this approach um, consistently with my competitors, you know, into shows, at least in the, the, the organizations that I'm competing in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's fascinating, you know, the kind of physiology that kind of goes on when you get really freaky lean in terms of, yeah, those kinds of more nuanced manipulations. How do you like to use refeeds and diet breaks? Yeah. So I'll typically start prep without a refeed. Um, you know, I mean, you got a lot of carbohydrates, you got a lot of energy, you don't really need a refeed day. I find, you know, I used to try adding a refeed and I found it would just, it would kind of delay the progress. You know, the first couple of weeks, nothing would happen because we're mm-hmm. having refeeds. Uh, there tends to be like a threshold at the beginning of prep where you gotta, you gotta make a bigger adjustment than you might think based on where your calories are. So I like to really get things moving before I add the refeed. Um, after a couple of weeks, things are going good. I'll probably add a refeed in one day a week, but for the bulk of prep, let's say if it's a 20 week prep from week 16 to week three, we're probably doing five consecutive low days, two consecutive refeed days. Okay. Five consecutive low days are going to be pretty aggressively low. The two consecutive refeed days are going to be a little bit more moderate. So it's not like a double your carbs kind of refeed. It's like, you know, maybe they go up, you know, 60, 70%, but you do that two days in a row. And I've just found that that is a much better response than the, the six, one refeed approach, the five, two, just, I've just had wonderful, wonderful, you know, results over the years with that. Um, And then when I add a diet break in, that's kind of like a coaching call. That's like, in my mind, when calories are getting low and I'm starting to see some thresholds, you know, when we're, when we're nearing that 10 times body weight calorie total, when we're, you know, getting pretty fatigued with cardio, that's when I like to say, okay, if we don't see a a progress at this week, we're going to take a one week diet break. Um, And it used to take me a little bit of convincing to get my competitors to do this because not many competitors go, well, I didn't make progress this week. So, you know what? I like this idea. Let's eat more and do less cardio. Yeah. But now I have such a good track record with them and I've documented them that now people will be like, Hey coach, when are diet breaks happening? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. they're not afraid of it because they know it's essentially going to kind of turbo boost them. Like if you're on a video game and you go through a diet break, you just speed up, right? Like it mm-hmm. kind of resets the, the body, the mind, um, and it kind of reinvigorates the competitor. You feel good in the gym, you get better sleep. Like I said, your meat goes up, your digestion improves. So you get this kind of right when things are getting rough, you get a little reboot. And then I'll go right back usually to that aggressive thing we were doing before. And the results just, you know, if you don't drop wheat, weight during the, uh, during the diet break, which I find most, most of them do, it really takes off after that. Um, and, and then they got to, they kind of get a glimpse of what their physique is going to look like. Cause you get a week of recovery, you know, your muscles kind of fill out, you, you get your strength back in the gym and you get a sense of what you're going to look like because for the bulk of prep, you're depleted. Even when you get a refeed day, it's still cardio and training and you're never really fully recovered. But during a diet break week, I try to get them to pull back their training to like 80% along with cutting their cardio at least in half. 
and bringing, you know, food up to roughly refeed, you know, numbers. Um, and it just gets a wonderful, wonderful response. So yeah, that's, that's of all the things that I do in prep, I think that's the one that if I had to say, gives my clients an edge when the show is over ever since incorporating refeeds and diet breaks, like multiple day refeeds and diet breaks, when the show ends, the response is so much better for the competitor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that highlights a, a few kind of, you know, meta advantages of the refeed and the diet break, which I think that like people, you know, have been talking about some of the new research coming out on ref refeeds. I mean, it isn't that strong at this point, but I think that there are some, you know, indirect advantages that you get, like with the refeeds, you know, if you place say heavier training days on those refeed days, it can be, and, and with diet breaks as well, it can be a way to help maintain training performance. And also specifically to competitors, what you're saying for, you know, if you're doing regular refeeds, that is actually somewhat similar to like your, 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 um, load carb loading phase during your peak weeks, you know, like seeing what it's like when you're filling out and with diet breaks as well, being able to kind of practice maintenance where, you know, when you come out of the show, you are, you know, where you are going to be going back to. So yeah, they can be definitely. Um, yeah, they're, I, I think they're a great idea. And even just from a sustainability perspective, where just having those, know, knowing that you have those two days where you have a bit more freedom with calories can really help in terms of just managing your lifestyle. Yep. Um, yeah, pers uh, specifically talking about female competitors, I know that you coach a lot of bikini athletes and uh, figure athletes and those. Um, you mentioned on the, your podcast with Steve Hall, that most of your athletes don't lose their menstrual cycle. I wanted to ask you about if you've noticed any strategies that you use that, you know, help with that, because from a medical perspective, I think that's, you know, I think that's huge. And I, I really want to promote strategies and in this sport that are going to be more, you know, sustainable and healthy. Yeah. So I think there's a few of them. Um, the one thing, you know, I noticed, cause I get, I get the opportunity to speak to athletes from a lot of different coaches, right? So if I'm speaking to a coach who's been with another, uh, another athlete's been with another coach and I want to know, okay, what was your diet? Like one of the commonalities that I see with women that have issues with their menstrual cycle is, um, I think, I don't know which one's most important. So I'm just going to put them all out there yeah. first. Nutritional fat is very low, oftentimes below 20 grams. As low as 10 grams, I've seen some yeah. coaches claiming that their, their clients are on zero fat, which I don't even know if that's possible because, you know, trace fats. But, um, you know, this is where you see some of the cookie cutter meal plans that are 800 calories and they're literally just like chicken and, and, and some vegetables. Right. Um, you do that for for a long period of time. That's going to obviously have some downstream effects. Um, girls complain about their their nails are, are brittle. Their hair is brittle. Uh, the next one would be staying in prep too long. You know, part of the competitive kind of community is sometimes girls will get some momentum. They might do well at a show and they want to do another show and they might do well at a show and want to do another show. And so they can, they can end up planning to do a prep for six months and extending it for over a year. Hmm. So the amount of time that you stay in prep can have really profound impact, you know, in my mind on, you know, all those things, especially if you're not bringing calories up and kind of doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the success that I have, I believe has been based on all that. I don't let the nutritional fat ever get to a point where I believe it's detrimental. Um, I don't let my competitors stay in prep 
past where I feel they're, you know, responding and they are productive human beings, right? You know, mm. none of my competitors are professionals where they don't do anything else. They all have social lives, you know, relationships, jobs. Um, but then also, you know, I think the diet breaks are probably the most important factor because mm. even my competitors that never had, you know, what I would consider below, you know, standard nutritional fat throughout their diet, they still would get amenorrhea, right? But with the diet breaks, what I noticed was a lot of my competitors years ago would get their cycles back in peak week. And peak week for me was mm. when we would drop the cardio and bring the food up. Well, and then stress would drop, right? So you've got, you know, and sometimes doing a show, getting the show completed, that anxiety and stress that comes with that competition is gone now. So mm. food is up, anxiety and stress is low. And then all of a sudden the body's happy again. And this is where, you know, I talk a lot about inflammation and stress being like major factors in, you know, some of the health issues with, with prep, with the diet breaks, you're basically kind of restoring some of that, you know, like well-being. Um, I talk a lot about now about chronic inflammation. That's the one thing I really try to pay attention to with my athletes. When my athletes are like, I want to push harder. I'm like, okay, we can't get to the point where you're pushing so hard that your inflammation actually prevents progress. And I don't know the mechanism behind this, but I will swear it until someone proves me wrong. Chronic inflammation will prevent fat loss. And I'm sure it has some impact on like hormones and, and digestion and, and things like that. But there is a mechanism where you can create so much inflammation where it doesn't make sense. You can, you can burn 8,000 calories doing cardio and eat 500 calories and you won't lose any weight. Um, mechanically speaking, that doesn't make sense. But you know, like I said, that, that calories in calories out equation is so dynamic that we don't understand everything that's going on in there. And I've just seen it so many times where if we can help that inflammation and, and, and that stress and that anxiety go away for a little bit, the, the body just recovers so much better. And this is where taking your time in prep is important. Not going, okay, I want to do this show in four weeks and I have 14 pounds to lose. That mm -hmm. is a recipe for disaster. Even if you get to stage after the show, you're going to be a wreck, right? So, I mean, you know, this is what a decade of work has allowed me to do is I don't take on competitors that I, that I'm not comfortable with, you know, whereas some people will, mm. you know, possibly coach a competitor that they think, well, you need to lose 30 pounds in 12 weeks. We can do it. And, and there's no way in the blue hell I'm going to do that. Right. But mm. I also say that to them and then they go, you're right. Whereas, you know, a coach who maybe has less experience and more confidence, you know, might allow someone to kind of crush themselves like that. Whereas, you know, that's, so yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that, why they are hormonally healthier. And it's not always the case because with anybody that gets stage lean, you know, for women sub 10% body fat in some cases, that's going to have a, an, an impact on your just, you know, hormonal systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think those are really uh, insightful points. And I think that, yeah, with the prep, you really don't want to be prepping longer than you need to be for people. Let's say they like, yeah, like, let's say we took a competitor who does really well kind of in the spring season and they want to compete again in the fall. How would you kind of bridge that gap? Yeah. So that's where we got to really actually, it can kind of be beneficial to take that approach because the benefit of doing that is what I have found is that the competitors that have the most success when their show is over are the ones that know their next goal. I don't I don't care if it's three months away or a year away. Hmm. For example, if I have a client get off of a national stage 
and she just turned pro or didn't turn pro, I say, hey, this is our next show that we're shooting for. So immediately they're like, I'm bringing their food up, but immediately they're back into the mindset of like, okay, I got to pay attention to my decision-making. Whereas if you just remove the, the prep, if you just go, well, prep's over. And this has happened to me. Literally the next Monday, I was like, I walked into the gym, did half my workout and hit the drive-through on the way home. I just didn't have that like focus, right? And, mm -hmm. and it's a slippery slope. And then before you know it, it's been a couple of weeks, you're up 25 pounds. And now you want to get back into prep just so you don't look like a slob. So if I'm going to have a competitor that say they're going to do a show in the spring and then our next target is the fall, maybe that's just the way it works out for them. Nationals, whatever it might be, you know, from mm -hmm. amateur to pro, whatever it might be. We've got that next goal. They're, they're, they're perfectly set up for me to do a, basically reverse them into the show. And then we just start going from there. We just keep the food up from there. So, you know, a lot of people ask me, what do you prefer reverse diet or, um, you know, 3DMJ kind of coined the term recovery diet. I say neither because my competitors are already at their off season macros. When they walk into the show, they don't need to reverse diet. You know, my girls are eating more food the day before the show than they were when they started prep. Nice. So they're already done with that part of it for uh, then it's just about making sure that they have the motivation to stick to that through the, you know, for the next few months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like let's, yeah, let's say someone competed in, you know, the spring and then, yeah, they want to kind of pull things back together and compete again later in the fall. And let's say they are really, really lean and kind of not in a great state. Like, yeah, like let's say they are, you know, they have lost their period or something like that. Uh, will you bring back some, you know, have bring back in some body fat for a little while? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, like we'll how, probably, how yeah. So we'll actually probably target the weight where they felt best in prep, you know, which is usually five to 10 pounds over stage weight mm -hmm. um, and try to get them there a little bit quicker just for that purpose. Um, but that's such a, that's such a unique situation that it's so case by case, you know, you can't speak in absolutes about any competitor in that situation because um, it's just such a unique place to be. I mean, even if you're stage weight, I don't care if you're eating 300 carbs, you're still starving. Yeah. You're still hungry. And most competitors, you know, their energy after like noon or 1 PM just starts to fade. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you, you, you oftentimes got to bring the scale up a little bit. Um, and it can be difficult going back down. You know, that's, that's the thing I, I find it very hard to get the weight off once it comes back up. Mm. Um, so you've got to really know what you're doing with the competitor to make sure that they're in a good enough place to do that. And if they go back into prep and they're not dropping, I might have to say, Hey, I like, you know, this was our idea. It's not working. It's not worth it. And then we have to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. It's, it's a more of a extreme scenario in terms of cardio. When cardio starts getting, you know, higher later in prep, do you have any sort of tricks for, you know, favorite modalities or how to distribute it throughout the training week? Yeah. So my favorite, you know, form of cardio at this point is low intensity, steady state. And it's something I figured out in 2018 when I prepped myself again. Um, well, I prepped myself for the first time that year, but I just got caught up watching a lot of the old school bodybuilders, right? So guys mm -hmm. from the 80s, the Dorian Yates, Ronnie Coleman's, Lee Haney's, and they all did the same thing. They just walked. And I thought, you know, when I came into the sport, everyone was doing hit cardio. And I thought, mm -hmm, yeah. all right, hit cardio obviously works. It has its place, 
but what's the difference? And so I just started my prep by walking and I got an incline treadmill for the house. Not everybody can, can, can do that. But for a lot of my competitors, I say, Hey, you need to have a form of cardio you can do at home because it makes it easy. If, if doing your cardio is difficult, meaning you got to get in a car, drive to the gym. Sometimes you got to go to the gym twice a day. That can be too much. Like if I didn't have a treadmill at my house in 2018, I probably wouldn't have done a show. I literally would put my kids to bed, go down to the garage, do some cardio, take a shower, go to bed. Right. If I had to drive in the car, go to the gym, come home, like that, that might've been too disruptive for me. So yeah. I just found that low intensity, steady state is super handy because it's such a sliding scale. Like you can literally take someone that's obese and just have them go for a walk and they can lose tons of weight. Mm -hmm. Someone that's rather fit, you might have to put them on a slight incline. By the end of prep, I'm on an incline and at a pretty good pace. Mm -hmm. So it might not be super low intensity anymore, but I like the idea of breaking a sweat when you're doing cardio. To me, that's the indicator that, okay, your body's actually burning some body fat. Okay. And it's also the knowledge that, you know, the fuel source that our body uses during cardio is based on the intensity. And I think there, you know, when I didn't have a lot of knowledge about exercise physiology, I thought that high intensity cardio burned fat because it was so high intense. It's actually glycolytic, right? So yes, you're still burning calories and you're creating a deficit, but it's not a necessary function for, for a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. Also, we talked about inflammation. Well, hit cardio can sure as shit increase inflammation. We talked about stress. Hit cardio can be very stressful. It's very hard to perform. Like I would find myself thinking about it before I had to do it. Um, now I did true hit cardio, like life or death sprints, sled pulls, things like that, where I literally couldn't breathe for several minutes after an interval, right? Mm -hmm. um, so some of that stuff I found, you know, you know, it's almost like a, when you're a competitor, you go, man, look how hardcore I am. I do hit cardio. I mean, watch Ronnie Coleman's old videos. The dude would get up every day and walk on his treadmill twice a day. Like mm -hmm. I thought, why, why am I trying to be better than the greatest bodybuilder that ever lived? Like maybe, maybe this will work for me. And, and lo and behold, I had the best, best prep I ever had. Um, I got the leanest I've ever gotten. I had the least adaptations to prep, meaning I didn't get cold and I didn't get dizzy. And later when I started thinking about why, well, my resting heart rate, when I was doing two to three hit sessions a week, got into the thirties, like, you know, 39, 40 beats per minute yeah. was normal for me. Didn't happen when I got low intensity, steady state cardio. You don't get those kind of VO two max max kind of, um, adjustments when you're not breathing that deeply. Um, so when your resting heart rate, isn't that low. I didn't get dizzy when I would stand up because I would have, you know, more oxygen in my blood, more blood pumping. And so I just started making these associations and maybe they're right or wrong, but I just, ever since I've been using in low intensity, steady state with its variations, I've just seen a better result from my competitors, a better result after the show. Um, and it's something that is walking hard. Not really. It's just about the time. It's about the commitment of time. But again, we're talking about competitors here that are going, I'm willing to do whatever you tell me to do. So mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's just been, I don't know. It's, it's changed the way I prep people. And I think for the better, um, and I, you know, it lets me sleep better at night, knowing my competitors, when the season's over, they're going to be okay. They're not going to, they're not going to have any issues, um, which wasn't always the case when I first started coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And yeah, I think that, you know, low, low intensity cardio is just 
you know, a, more of a intelligent choice for contest prep people because of the fatigue costs. And as you mentioned, all that stress and everything else that comes along with trying to do intense stuff. So yeah, like I used to run track and in my, I remember in my first prep, I tried to do like track sprints and it was a terrible idea, right? Like, I mean, it, it definitely was a intense workout, but it just, you know, had a lot of downstream effects on my training and mood and energy levels the rest of the time that it just wasn't worth it. And yeah, I remember, I remember doing like hit workouts on the weekend and then I literally wouldn't get off the couch the rest of the day. So what I, what I tell people now is I go, yeah, the difference is if you do a hit workout, you're creating an oxygen deficit, which everyone's all excited about. Yeah. I'm burning calories for hours later. I go, but if you didn't do the hit cardio, you would have got up off the couch and burned the same amount of calories. So you just exchanged being a normal human being for being a, a, a prep zombie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you worked out a little bit too hard when you have to come home and sleep. <laughs> oh, every, that was every weekend. I would plan around yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the thread of training, when people's calories get really low, as you mentioned, kind of nearing that one gram, like, um, you know, um, grams of carbs in body weight, what will you do in terms of their training? Like, does their volume or intensity change much in terms of uh, like, and how much weight they're lifting? No, I, what I try to do is actually talk them into focusing their training around earlier in the day. Cause when they're that low in calories and that low in body fat, usually everyone wakes up and has a meal and feels great. Right. So I try to get them to train earlier in the day because by later in the day, you know, anybody who's prepped, you know, a couple of weeks out from a show, I don't care how much pre-workout you take. If you wait till four or five o'clock to train, you're just a zombie, right? So I try to focus more of the carbohydrates around the workout. So they'll get some pre and post-workout carbohydrates. They'll mm -hmm. train earlier in the day. And I find the workouts actually don't suffer um, even deep into prep if you can train, you know, if you're in, in, in tune with your kind of circadian rhythm when you feel good. Um, mm -hmm. and so one of my favorite things to do now is just get my competitors up in the morning and just get moving. So go do some walking, even before you eat, just do some fasted cardio, not because fasted cardio is, you know, magical, but because that way you're, you're burning calories and you don't have to eat. What I find is if I eat and then do cardio in the morning, I'm starving all day. If I do my cardio first and then eat no problem. Um, so little, little tricks like that, just paying attention to what works best for that individual. You know, um, mm -hmm. you know, at a certain point, you're just going to have to train through. I don't try to, most of my training programs at this point, the volume is spread out, right? I don't have like 45 sets on leg day. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll spread the volume out over three days. Um, so I'll have some upper lower days mixed in instead of trying to do all my leg work on one day, I might have a quad focus day with like biceps, right? So that the competitor's not going in going, okay, I got to do squats. I got to do this. I got to do hip thrusts. I got, no, it's more like, okay, this, we're just going to work on squats on this day. And then you do some biceps next time. We're going to do some deadlifts and then maybe we'll do some triceps, you know? So I I've tried to adjust the training programs so that they're feeling good every time they go in the gym, you know, those, and I know it's kind of a rite of passage, you know, can't walk out of the gym on leg day. I just don't find a lot of value in it for most competitive bodybuilders beyond the saying how cool you are <laughs> yeah yeah no that's yeah that's a good point of um yeah like as as things become more extreme with your calorie availability then you know it makes more sense to really focus on fatigue distribution 
because yeah, you're just not going to have that uh, bounding energy to jump into a crazy leg day on, wow. on a one day in the week. Yeah. Um, coming out with some other, I guess, you know, fat loss things. Have you ever, have you noticed any sort of tricks that you like to use for satiation with just kind of, you know, contest prep foods, maybe diet drinks, you know, people talk about using gum or, uh, other kinds of fun tools. Yeah. I think, you know, for myself, I've become a connoisseur of diet soda, um, <laughs> yeah, which probably, you know, when people think of contest prep, they, you know, I, I think the old school bodybuilders, you know, you had to drink alkaline water and no, I let my competitors use all the seasoning they want. I like to keep sodium 3,500 milligrams or higher. Um, uh, I do believe in zero calorie drinks, you know, between meals. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate over, you know, branch chain amino acids, but I like using them because, you know, for me, it's like a, a, a sensory specific thing where like I drink something between my meals that makes me feel fuller. You got some water, you got some sweet taste in there. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I'll talk to my clients about food volume and food choice. Um, that always helps. And I think the biggest thing is not getting hung up on doing like six small meals a day, but for the bulk of prep four large meals to me is the better way to go. Like, I mm -hmm. like the idea of actually eating a meal with enough volume that when you finish it, you feel like you ate something versus, you know, a 350 calorie meal that you literally take the last bite and you feel like you haven't had anything yet. And then you immediately can't mm -hmm. wait for two and a half hours to pass. So you can eat your next little meal. Um, I tried it both ways and honestly for the bulk of prep when I was on, you know, when I'm on four meals, I don't even feel like I'm on prep, not until my body fat gets really low, but literally the minute I try to eat five or six times a day, I'm just hungry all the time, right? That hunger signal is just always present. So, you know, paying attention to what can provide the best, um, method for each person to say, okay, this is what works for me. You know, I used to be a proponent of, all right, never do fasted workouts or cardio. Mm -hmm. Well, if you do that, what happens is sometimes you eat before your workout and you're starving all day. Well, if they can train mm -hmm. fasted without any interference to their performance and then feel better after that first meal, then why not? Like what, why, why we can even treat their meal before bed as their pre-workout meal. Right. So you know, for me, it's all about finding, you know, if someone tells me like, coach, I, I used to do it this way and I wasn't hungry, then let's go back to that. Right. I don't have any, like, you have to do it this way. You can't, I like to take the input from the athlete, but you know, mostly it's going to be built around like meal size, meal volume, like food choice, you know, obviously being intelligent with your macros, not trying to eat, you know, ice cream and, and whey protein for the bulk of your macros, but getting in some fruits and vegetables and things that are actually going to you know, allow you to feel like you ate some, some food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And fun question for yourself when you're getting into prep, what are like your favorite, like low calorie density foods? You know, probably the one that I, that I, I probably don't eat popcorn at all when I'm not in prep. Like mm. it never occurs to me to eat popcorn <laughs> when I'm in prep. There's something about having an entire bowl of popcorn with spray butter and salt on it. That's like a hundred calories, right? It's like 20 carbs. It's because it takes a while to eat it. Right. And so you've got this volume and it's, you know, it's salty and it feels, it just feels like a, you know, air pop popcorn is like remarkably, you know, good for, for feeling like you get to have a snack because sometimes it's like the social 
aspect of it, right? You just want to sit down on the couch and watch a TV show and have a snack and you can't because there's not anything that fits your macros. Um, (laughs) So yeah, popcorn is a big one. You know, I can make a a rice cake dessert, you know, that most people would (laughs) blow their mind. I can you know mix in (laughs) some stuff and, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, I, I, I get pretty good at, um, just finding foods. And it seems like every prep, something different strikes me as like the, the go-to food, you know, I remember one prep, it was like every night I wanted an egg white omelet with lean ground beef and and hot sauce. It just like, I think it was all the sodium. I don't know. I had it every night. I could not wait to make that thing. Right. So (laughs) they're just, they're just, they're just become certain obsessions. Each prep and each prep is kind of a little bit different. I love sweet potatoes, something Mm. about a sweet potato just magically my digestion improves my recovery improves and i probably should eat them year round but i think foods that i eat so much of in prep i kind of don't eat much of the rest of the year i don't know if it's you know it's just the way that i'm built um you know it's it's the same thing when i'm not in prep i don't want to track everything to the gram like i that's that's the part when prep's over that i need to let go of first Hmm. i just let my consistency with meal prep kind of carry me through and Hmm. just be a little bit more estimative than, than I am in prep. Um, so yeah, I think we all have our coping mechanisms, but yeah, I think popcorn would probably be my like number one, like hack for a bodybuilder. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's awesome. The one I'll do is I'll, I'll add uh, salt and Splenda and kind of make a yeah. zero calorie added kettle corn. Yep. Great. But yeah, that's, that's funny. Um, and yeah, I guess just wrapping up here, one last fun question. Do you have a, night before the show ritual or routine that you'll always go through yeah so my my night before the show well the so the day before the show i always go get a manicure pedicure um which i never do outside of prep but my first show someone said well if you don't put clear nail polish on when you get the spray tan your nails will turn orange so i was like oh great how am i gonna get clear nail polish on and you know my girlfriend was like well let's just go get a manicure pedicure and i'm like are you serious (laughs) For anyone listening that's never done this, it is one of the great experiences. Like it is so relaxing, <laughs> right? You sit in a the chair, they massage your calves, they massage your forearms. I get, I always go for like whatever the package one is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I ha- they, they, they clean up my cuticles, they file my nails down, and then they just put a clear coat on there. And it's, I don't know, 45 minutes, but that, I don't know, that that's kind of like my thing that lets me go, okay, now I know it's showtime. Um, and then obviously the night before the show, it's, you know, I do, I do my own tan. So I, I apply the pro tan mm. myself. I really believe in that. I've gotten a lot of my competitors to do it as well, because nice. sometimes the process of going to get sprayed is stressful. And I hate stress for a bodybuilder, even just standing there half naked with a cold gun spraying on you, knowing that you have to be at an appointment at five 30, when you could just stand in your room with a pad and go like this and then sit back down. Right. So, mm. um, I love doing my own tan, um, you know, so those are kind of my rituals the night before the show. And, you know, as far as, you know, I usually have like a group of people with me that I want to hang out with. So I, you know, I like a steak and a potato. So if there's an Outback Steakhouse, that'll be like my last meal of the night before the show, you know, so mm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah. I think that is a, a really good point to kind of end off on is that I think, you know, a lot of more advanced bodybuilding is about learning how to manage stress. And I think the intelligent bodybuilders are the most relaxed ones where I think, you know, when you initially get into bodybuilding, you think of it as kind of these robots going around, you know, execute no matter what, but a lot of it comes down to, you know, 
the, the per, often the people who are able to manage everything else and get that down to a T as well are the most successful. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'll say this: I can almost tell by my interactions with my clients who's going to handle prep the me- the best, right? Like a lot of people will assume that my most successful competitors are my most high maintenance. It's almost always the opposite. Yeah, my most successful competitors check in on time. They don't ask follow-up questions. They follow the plan and they just execute it. And they actually trust me that I'm leading them in the right direction. The ones that I have the least success with send me multiple questions per week, you know, want to question why we're doing this, why we're doing that. And not that I don't have any problem with that. I like, I like answering questions so that people understand the process, but I'll also get, instead of two text messages on show day, I'll get 45 coach. I just went pee. What should I do? Coach, you know, um, they're going to push back prejudging by one hour. What should I do? You know, it's almost like they're, they're, they're so worried about the minutia that they're actually going to create more stress for themselves and, and risk, you know, ruining some of their hard work because of that. Um, you know, and I get it. A lot of people get into bodybuilding because they like the control aspect of it, but Mm -hmm. I really believe in working so hard that like, towards the end, you can kind of relax a little bit. Um, the body's not going to change that much in a day or a week, as long as you're taking care of it. Um, so yeah, you can, you can enjoy, you can definitely enjoy show day. Um, if the body's not going to change that much, as long as you're taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. Coming to realize what things actually make a difference and really trying to minimize your decision fatigue with everything else. Yeah. I think was a was a big turning point for me when I was first getting started. So yeah, I think that was a great discussion. I think people will take a lot of value from this, especially the advanced bodybuilders in the crowd. And where can people find you? Well, ProPhysique.com is my website. Uh, we have a podcast called The Pro Physique Code. Um, I have a YouTube channel and uh, Instagram that are both just my name, Paul Ravella. Um, and we have a transformation challenge that starts uh, January 15th, the registration's open now, but the, the, like the start date, that's our, that's our big thing that we do every year. We give away $50,000. So, um, you can find us on just about anywhere. If you just type in my name, Paul Ravella is kind of a a unique name. I don't know that there's anybody named Ravella. That's not a relative of mine. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show description and thanks again so much for being on the show. Thanks Bill. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.